0: Hey there, this is Dylan, David, and Sean take on fascism here to discuss what can the history of anti-fascism tell us about responding to fascism today?
1: So the definition of Antifa that I have to offer is that it is in opposition to fascist ideologies, groups, and individuals. Um, Ida Wells is known to be one of the first uh, anti-fascists. It was during the, the Reconstruction years after the Civil War when the KKK was uh, first came into effect. Um, she, some of her quotes are are the following: um, "One had better die fighting against injustice than die like a rat or a dog in a trap." Now, this is a pretty militant mindset, I would say, because uh, she was known to walk around with a pistol in her hand. Um, the she she says that the law is on the side of the fascists. Well, that's how I take it. Um, She also says that a Winchester rifle should be in every black person's home because the law is not going to protect you, so you have to protect yourself. Um, In the couple of years after this, during, during while all this was going on, I guess she owned a... It was a printing press, a local printing press. She had her own newspaper, and she would hand it out, and she spoke out against fascism and the KKK, in particularly lynching. And her office was burned as a result of this. Um, yeah.
2: So, like this really demonstrates one method of anti-fascism going back to the early days of what historians consider the first onset of fascism. So, Wells h- had an idea of basically self-preservation that you have to anticipate that the law will not be on your side and that The only way to combat extreme injustice is oftentimes through violence and this argument makes sense because if you look at say the Nazis in Germany during World War two in hindsight we can say people should have fought back and maybe they should have fought back I mean before things got extremely out of hand and what I mean by out of hand is nipping fascism at the bud uh, and violently. So this could bring some problems because fascism is so hard to define for us now, decades after its height. S- and the problem with that is who gets to decide how far to the right fascism is and who who on the right gets to decide when they're not fascist. And uh, this could lead to some certain rights being infringed upon, especially here in America where we have uh our Bill of Rights. Uh, what to what extent are we willing to to give up these rights so that we can be protected from fascism?
1: I agree with that because I uh for example I saw a video not too long ago on the news. There was a there was a rally, it was a conservative rally, it was outside of somewhere I think in the West Coast. Uh there was there was like a 70-year-old lady and her husband, and they were going into a conservative rally. I don't think it was anyone extreme-speaking. And Antifa showed up outside, and they've basically gotten their faces, called them Nazis, and were trying to uh, basically instill fear in their hearts to keep them from going into the rally. So it's kind of a sensitive subject, because like, how, how far is too far in... Not infringing on the American right to assemble, while trying to make sure that fascist regime re- regimes don't come into
2: power. So, like an example of this is Germany today. You in in Germany you can't express certain Nazi symbols like you can't give the Hitler salute. You can't. A
0: swastika. You can't.
2: Yeah, you can't publicly wear a swastika. I don't even think you you're allowed to have it privately. I doubt it. But, uh, so technically, yes, this does infringe on the German people's rights to uh, express themselves and uh, even their freedom of speech, but these are rights that they were willing to give up in the aftermath of World War II. And so it's their choice, but for other countries that don't have the stigma of Having a violent fascist history, it's a lot harder to discern what, what is too far in I alienating mean, these rights.
0: I mean, it's sort of like they're willing to give it up just so people don't view them still as, fa- still as a fascist country. So, yeah. I mean, it's worth it to them. And I don't know if here in America, taking away rights like free, freedom of speech in order to prevent fascism would go over very well. People would outrage and be like, "We, what is going on? We don't deserve this. And I think that's one of the main problems. So one major point that was brought up to us is that the anti-fascists are always one step behind the fascists. So how could they detect fascism before it got to be a huge problem well I don't know exactly what would work but probably a system in place to detect fascist ideologies before it becomes a full-out dictatorship with Hitler killing six million Jews
2: so like the problem with that is the anti-fascism is literally anti-fascism and it can't exist without fascism so it basically exists as a reactionary yeah, effort yeah, yeah like like when there's fascists there's going to be anti-fascists so like one way that we've seen go- uh, governments reacting to fascism is by keeping tabs on groups that are uh, exhibiting extremist views and Actions within the community. So just
0: yeah, but what does keeping tabs mean? Does that mean that they'll interfere before things get too bad? Yes, yeah,
2: so I I have an example actually. Just last week, um, the Italian police arrested several members of the National Italian Socialist Party because they were um, gathering weapons, uh, guns, bombs, and they were plotting to to bring back mainstream fascism in Italy. Hmm and this was literally just last weekend so and they had been keeping tabs on this group, they were, they were watching them, they were monitoring their mm-hmm. their internet history and stuff like that making sure that they weren't go- going too far. But isn't that an
0: infringement on their rights?
2: Th- and that, that brings it back to the point like how, how far are people willing to go and I think... To
0: protect against fascism. I think most
2: people would be okay with like the police keeping an eye on certain groups and intervening only when, when these groups start I- exhibiting like dangerous, dangerous actions like ho- hoarding weapons, like stockpiling weapons, basically, that's that's not usually something that a a group would do if if they have good intentions, you know.
0: I mean, but what are anti-fascist tactics? So that brings up what do they do to stop this? They go to rallies and they have traditional forms of protesting like rallies, protests, march. But it could also be, v- they can also be violent. There's extreme tactics that can be taken such as violence, knives, bricks, change. They can make human chains in order to prevent against any sort of um, marching, in marching traffic. and traffic. And
2: yeah.
0: this is just them trying to disrupt the far right events and the, the speakers of the far right.
2: So another, oh. another thing about fascism today and alt-right extremism is that it, it, it seems to be much more personal and in class we talked about lone wolves and I think that, that is actually very important for the discussion today because more and more we see these uh, estranged uh, people committing massive acts of terror and violence. On the population, in the name of their ideology which is which is uh, increasingly uh, like following a white nationalist identity, and one thing that they have today that the fascists of the middle the mid twentieth century is the internet, which plays a huge part in in creating extremists today because one it's anonymous you can go onto the internet under any alias and post anything you want and for the most part people won't be able to figure out who you are where you live and stuff like that and even if they are you there's steps that you can take to mask your ip address and your location and your name and all all that stuff uh two it's uh it's a uh, a self-driven experience you can go onto the internet and find anything to back up Pretty much any claim, and even if it 's not true, it just adds to your own personal beliefs that whatever you're reading about is true it's it's a confirmation bias basically you are reading what you want to hear and it's only strengthening your views so in in the modern day, uh, mostly young white men uh, fall into this where they they become estranged. They, they go onto the internet, they hear all these conspiracy theories, and they develop this white national identity, and they reach a breaking point where, where they feel that the only answer is to attack people who don't fit into their white nationalist identity and commit these uh, massive acts of terror, like, like the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand, last year where a man went into a mosque and shot multiple people killing a lot of them even in south carolina dylan roof who fits into this uh identity perfectly he just went to a majority black church in south carolina sat there for a little while and then shot the people in it
1: yeah and one that i can think of uh this past summer i believe it was in august in el paso there was the walmart yeah. shooting, and that was one of the more recent, really controversial ones, because it kind of ties into the whole alt-right agenda. Um, they're highly... He, th- this shooter in particular, I, I don't remember his name, but he was highly uh, anti-immigrant. He said he was going down to El Paso to stop the Mexican invasion across the border in El Paso. And the, the issue with this lone wolf situation is that the, the FBI can closely monitor anyone they want but the thing is it's kind of like the crisis that's manufactured by this lone wolf, lone wolf situation it kind of breeds ground for dismantling people's personal rights kind of almost in a sense killing the democracy because they're going to have to put into effect these these uh solutions that involve monitoring people and how do you stop a lone wolf you you monitor them, and wh- when do you get to the point where you decide that you're going to arrest them because you think they're going to do something?
0: So. If you arrest them, even if you don't have any evidence, that won't work. I mean, you have to wait for a certain point no. before and you it, can arrest it, them. And it
2: brings back the same problem where the Where do you problem. draw the line between um, giving up your rights for your safety, and a lot of people aren't willing to do that, and it could potentially potentially enable future fascists but even then, it it's hard to discern where where it it sh- the line should be drawn.
0: But this is a relatively new issue, meaning that when Hitler was in power, there was no internet, there was no I don't know television news. So yeah,
2: instant it, broadcast. Instant. So you have to like apply some of those older anti-fascist methods and.
0: Which um, is the root of this whole podcast. Yes. And how mold, them does into,
2: mold them into ways to combat it
0: today. today. Because a lot of these things today did not apply back then. Yes, And a lot of the things that applied back then don't apply today. So it's
2: so, um, it's an ongoing issue. So yeah. like in the case of Derek Black, who was born into a famous white nationalist, f- uh, infamous white nationalist family in the United States, I think... His story is a good example because he was born into it, grew up believing this, and was basically sheltered from uh all other ideologies and peoples who didn't fit into what his parents had uh basically created for hi- themselves and him and as soon as he goes into college the the sudden realization that that his views aren't as popular or even accepted as he may have previously thought are so he but he's lucky and he makes a jewish friend who befriends him basically tries to re-educate him on these matters and they do that through statistics and data disproving his arguments because he was willing to listen to their arguments and through that he realized that his white nationalist movement and that of his parents was not uh something for him so that
1: brings me to uh conclude that the this uh the grandson of david duke right that was who he was Mm -hmm. he was um that that's probably the most natural form of anti-fascism that you can actually encounter is just by he was just going to school he made a friend he was racist, I'm in talking. a nutshell.
2: A very personal approach. Yeah, yeah. And
1: there, there was not it's a bunch of people approach. standing outside of a rally or something like that, lighting cars on fire. There was just it's, two people talking.
2: You're just gonna strengthen people. If you go out and attack people and their views, it's usually not gonna do a lot to persuade them. Yeah. It, some, some people are maybe too far gone that that no amount of argument or data or facts is going to change their opinion. But you have, to, you have to assume that you can convince people to switch from that so that it doesn't get to a violent uh, tipping point.
0: But the thing is that he was born into it. He didn't choose to become a fascist. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that brings up the point, if he had chosen to become a fascist out of his own free will, would he have been as open to um, re-examining his ideologies.
2: Probably not.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's a a hard situation.
2: It's a hard situation. But then uh, earlier in the semester we talked about Christian Picciolini, who was not born into a white nationalist movement, but he was basically indoctrinated in his teenage years. And through personal connections with people who who came into his uh, music store, and with his own uh, wife and his son, he realized that this life wasn't for him. So y- you can't hold everyone to the same standard. Everybody is different and they all have different stories. You just have to figure out how their specific situation formed, evolved, mm-hmm. and then target that with a method. And sometimes it's going to be as easy easy quotation marks as (laughs) as arguing with them and 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 slowly changing their mind and then sometimes it's going to get to a point where it has to be uh finished violently so that it doesn't reach a point like it did in like 1930s 1940s nazi germany
0: so before we conclude i just want to bring up the overall question of today what can the history of anti-fascism tell us about responding to fascism today
2: so i think The overarching point is that fascism is an evolving thing and it's probably going to be here for a long time. And so anti-fascism as a reactionary effort has to also be equally as evolving as fascism and flexible depending on the situation.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next time.